women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about and with the change-making women of Princeton University. I'm Margaret Koval, a graduate alumna from 1983, and I'm talking today with Helen Zia, class of 73. Helen has devoted most of her life and career to social change. She grew up in an immigrant family. Helen's a second-generation Chinese-American. And she was one of the pioneering women in Princeton's first co-educational class of 1973. She then launched a traditional path by starting medical school, but quickly tossed that aside to become a factory worker and a community organizer. She eventually turned to journalism and climbed that ladder up to the executive editor's office of Ms. Magazine. She's written three books, including Asian American Dreams, The Emergence of an American People, and Helen, it's a pleasure to have you. My pleasure, Margaret. You have so many change agent uh, activities in your past that I really don't know where to start. So I thought it might be useful to start with one of the themes of your of your book. Um, and that is the um, the ups and downs of the model minority stereotype. And if, uh, if I could paraphrase that, uh, you describe that stereotype to include uh, worker bee behavior and very little voice. And uh, clearly that's not you. So I'm wondering where you got the inspiration or the courage to lead a life of change making? Well, I have to say that I, um, I think, was very fortunate to grow up at a time of great social change, uh, not just in the United States, and I'm talking about the civil rights movement, as well as the uh, anti-war movement about the U.S. involvement in Vietnam and the women's movement. And so I feel like I grew up seeing those changes taking place. And for Asian Americans, um, it's interesting because the model minority stereotype really didn't exist when I was a child. Back then, after World War II, you know, um, 120,000 Japanese Americans had just been incarcerated for the duration of the war because of who, what they looked like. Um, When I was a child, the intensely cold war with China existed. So every Chinese was considered a potential spy or, um, you know, a fifth column in the United States. And so my family was uh, investigated by the FBI. And I knew this as a child of six. And I knew it because not only did packages and phone things happen, but our neighbors got questioned and that they, you know, the neighbor kids would say, oh, what does your father do? You know, the FBI was here. So, I mean, there was no question. And that was a time when Asian Americans and Chinese Americans were viewed as being a foreign invader, an enemy alien, you know, Ming the Conqueror or Fu Manchu. But with the um, civil rights movements of the 60s, suddenly there came a word that appeared first in the New York Times and then in U.S. News and World Reports and then got um, popularized as that uh, while some minorities are creating trouble in our inner cities, you know, guess who? Uh, there is another minority by dint of their own hard work, not a welfare check, are making progress in America quietly. And that was, they named, you know, Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans. And so this was clearly, and, and this was not written by anybody Asian. So that was uh, really the birth of the model minority of, of depicting Asians uh, as a good minority, whereas other black and brown people were uh, bad minorities. Oh, that's really interesting. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, did you say this was in the late 60s? This was 1966. 66. I mean, it has a definite 
time and place when those articles were published. Fascinating. Right in the midst of the Vietnam War. In the midst of the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement. Um, so, so what I then saw was a shift. I mean, on the one hand, we could be, you know, the devil incarnate, you know, Fu Manchu coming to destroy America or the planet Earth. Um, or we could be the model minority. Now, we didn't define ourselves in any of those ways. And I think as a kid, I rebelled against both. Um, first, against the idea that I was not American. You know, I was born here, apple pie, you know, hot dogs and stuff like that. But whenever um, my family went anywhere, it, it was as people would look at us as though we were enemy aliens landing in, you know, in their country. And... Um, and I would always be asked, you know, wow, you speak such good English. And, of course, that's not really grammatical either, but, um, you know, <laughs> and things like that would happen constantly. Um, and so I, uh, uh, I also grew up being proud of being um, Chinese, my ethnic heritage. You know, my parents tried to reinforce that. And so to me, speaking out and being different was just a way that I uh, – a part of my existence. It was part of my who I was. I knew I was different. Everywhere I went, I was different. So speaking up about something that I saw was that I, I felt was wrong, whether it was about me or inequality to, to uh, African Americans or apartheid in uh, South Africa, which were all issues here on the Princeton campus, um, those were things that I felt I should speak out about too. That's and, fascinating. And I didn't feel restricted by being a model minority to do that. Interesting. It makes me wonder, actually, what made you want to come to Princeton, which was, you know, viewed by many people at the time, and I think it probably lived up to its reputation as being a very traditional, certainly all-male, as we know, uh, university. Oh, uh, completely. That was the reputation and, um, you know, 200-plus years of being all-male and pretty much uh, uh, one class of male. I mean, it, it was... Uh, a minority of public school graduates that would go. It was all white male, pretty much. Even Jewish students were, um, you know, discriminated against when they applied to Princeton and so forth. And so uh, it was pretty um, homogeneous. But the idea and the the sense of change uh, that you know that I was growing up with about uh, institutions like Princeton. Um, that were rethinking that they were accepting women, they were accepting people of color, and and it was a handful. I mean, um, but what appealed to me was the fact that I could be, by virtue of coming to Princeton, part of that change, and to see it happen, and to be part of it in whatever way you know a, a, an eighteen-year-old can think about being part of something larger than oneself. But um, that really did appeal to me, and that really, it, it really was. Um, it really was what was happening. I'm struck that um, we often talk about the difficulties of being at the forefront of, of, of these movements. Uh, but I'm also struck by the, the sense of mission and purpose it can give a person's life, and I think you're a strong representative of that. Uh, do you feel sorry in any sense for generations that don't have that same sense of purpose because they're not having to break down barriers? Um, there are still as barriers. much yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Forgive me for I mean, <laughs> but the perception, and I mean, you know, we can't forget we just came out of a um, a period of time where people were talking about post race, uh, post civil rights, post uh, um, um, women's movement, uh, you know, post everything because 
hey, we have an African-American in the White House. And uh, we can say today that, uh, you know what, all of that was a little premature saying that, you know, um, uh, discrimination, intolerance, and uh, uh, prejudice of all kinds is uh, it's still quite rampant and possibly even worse considering where we are today. Um, and I'm sorry, I think I lost track of your question. I, I asked if you ever felt that, that the, the struggles were actually uh, very, very positive for giving you a sense of purpose in life and whether that's missing in, 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 in young students' lives today as much. You know what I think is missing? Not the sense of purpose. I meet so many young people, so many students who, who really are committed to, to doing something. I think what's missing is the sense that we can make change, not only make change, but uh, create waves of revolution. I mean, the discussions in the 60s and 70s were about making revolution, whether it was a, an electoral uh, uh, revolution in Congress, um, and there was a whole movement to change Congress over that was led by young people, that we could end the war, that we could end racism, that we could do these things, and a real feeling that we could that we had the power to do it, and why not? You know, and I think um, when I talk to you know some students today, there's a, a feeling that they have to have all the answers before they start. And whether it was uh, you know just complete naivete, you know, of us in those days, which I'm sure that was an element to think, well, why not? We can run the country better, you know, and. Um, and I would say, well, actually, there should be a little bit more homework before then. <laughs> but it shouldn't stop people from having, yeah. you know, taking the same of the first steps. Yeah. Because change is one step at a time. And I'm curious uh, how you felt Princeton either accelerated or, or, or otherwise that, that urge or that sense of, um, of uh, possibility. Well, there were, in my era, there were definitely. Um, uh, whether it was just uh, logistical things that had to be solved, how many bathrooms, what kind of beds women would sleep in as opposed to what beds men would sleep in. I mean, you know, um, uh, whether people should be allowed to swim naked in Dillon Gym swimming pool, um, things that today seem kind of trivial, but but they were dealt with. And engage, uh, the you know, the administration was willing to engage in that dialogue, and there were conflicts too. Um, I in my first year took part of a sit-in at Firestone Library to say that there, you know, you're admitting people of color and there's no place for us. I mean, we feel a little bit out of sorts here. I mean, the other students can go to their eating clubs, they can go to their traditional places, but we had no place. And that um, sit-in led to the uh, founding of the Third World Center, which now is the, you know, um, the, has become the uh, Carl Fields um, Center, and and that was a big change. And so the administration actually was not happy that we had sat in on on uh, Firestone Library. It, it wasn't that they said, "Okay, we'll give you what," but it uh, was an opportunity to have a dialogue, and we felt we could do it. Mm. I mean, not only to change things at Princeton, but one of our demands was to end racism uh, in you know, the world, mm. and also the war in Vietnam. So, you know, we had, you know, uh, specific um, things we wanted, but also had a, a really large goal in sight. And I think today, you know, um, sometimes 
I meet students who say, well, climate change, that's such a big issue. You know, how do we even tackle that? And, you know, that's one of the differences between then and now, I think. We didn't worry that we that it was a big issue. It's like, yeah, let's go for it. And um, anyway, yeah. that's a much longer conversation about <laughs> the strategies and how to deal with things. Um, I'm going to pick up your personal biography a little bit if I can. Okay, because I, sure. You left Princeton and you, you went to Tufts Medical School, I, I think. I did. And you lasted how long again? I realized within about two weeks of being there, or maybe even two days, that I had made a big mistake. I majored at uh, public and international affairs here. Uh, that was really where my passion was. But not knowing and not coming from a background where I had any idea of the real career choices available, um, um, you know, as a kid of immigrants, it's sort of like doctor, lawyer, um, teacher, or business. And really, those were the four things that I thought of. And then I was kind of shy. And so speaking up, uh, like in a class or in a courtroom, was something I never thought I could do. And so that left um, business, which I didn't want to do because I thought of that as small business, like my parents had, and hand-to-mouth kind of existence. So I went to, um, I took the minimum number of pre-med courses that I could take here, and I got admitted to um, <laughs> to uh, some medical schools, and I went. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, I realized this is, um, you know, not the place. Um, you had set a traditional career of medicine. Well, back then, uh, there were very few women and very few people of color. If if Princeton had an idea of wanting to go co-educational, um, medical schools and medical institutions began accepting people, but they were incredibly, um, I would say, uh, just sexist and racist. I mean, you get taught by uh, case studies, and they would be the most horrible descriptions. A hysterical female came in, you know, uh, presented with these symptoms, and she was hysterical. So we don't really believe she had any of. I mean, that would be the kind of thing Amazing. that would be was taught. So it was in a way non-traditional, but from an immigrant point of view, it was definitely. Um, oh, our daughter, the doctor, she'll take care of us when we're old. Yeah, so. interesting. And, and uh, uh, so I, I did think about your parents when I read your biography. What did they say when, when, when that daughter said, I'm dropping out and I'm going to work on a factory line in Detroit? Uh, well, I, I know they thought I was crazy. I know they were incredibly unhappy. It, uh, as I said, I knew almost immediately that it was the wrong thing. But it took me two years before I could uh, uh, just even think of disappointing my parents. And um, so I tried to keep going. I thought, okay, four years, that's not so bad. But then I realized I'm making myself sick. You know, I could feel a physical, you know, just um, not good things. And I just thought, I can't do this. And I told my parents, um, I didn't say I'm quitting. I said I'm taking a leave of absence. But, of course, they realized I was quitting, <laughs> especially the part of going to work in a factory. <laughs> and and they uh, – uh, I think it took my father at least uh, two or three years before he would um, even speak to me in a civil way. And he was a big letter writer, and he would write letters to me that began with, um, to my daughter who is worse than my worst enemy. Oh and my. he enlisted my kid brother and sister who were like 10, 11 years old to write me letters in their little child handwriting. Like, Helen, mom and dad are really upset. You know, are you crazy? You know, go back to medical school. <laughs> and, but the thing was, I knew 
that there was something else for me to do. And uh, the, the kind of changes I wanted to make were not going to happen by spending six years, 10 years in medical school. And you, you uh, by making that big break early in your life, uh, other big breaks were easier to make, I think. Well, for sure. I mean, my parents um, concluded that I was crazy. And then, and then uh, later on, when I came out as gay, as lesbian, um, uh, well, actually, I have to say it took me a long time to, to come out to my parents. But, um, but I think, you know, my mother said, oh, I know. And I think a lot of mothers you know, <laughs> know a lot. Um, and, and it was not it was not as bad as quitting medical school, let's put it that way. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Yeah. So if you could give me a fast forward through the years um, as a community organizer and how that led you to a career in journalism, um, I would be fascinated to hear. Well, so I was in Detroit um, because some friends of mine, while I was doing community organizing in Boston after I quit Tufts Medical School, they said, well, if you really want to make change and uh, know how change is made in America, you should go to the heartland of America and see something different. You know, Boston's a big college, uh, university town and everything like that, even though I was an activist there too. And so I thought, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> and I um, picked up and moved to Detroit without actually knowing uh, anybody. I had some friends of friends who said you can crash in our house until you figure out uh, how to support yourself here. And I applied for... Um, uh, a job at a couple of, uh, you know, the three big automakers. Mm -hmm. And within two weeks, oh, and by the way, on my application, I did not say I, I had gone to Princeton <laughs> or to medical school. So I didn't lie. I just didn't fill in all the blanks. And, um, and I got a job within two weeks. And I have to say, when we think about, um, you know, working class people and these high, really well-paid um, manufacturing jobs, um, Minimum wage as a Princeton graduate and a college, uh, a, a medical school student was about a, a dollar fifty an hour. Uh, when I went to the uh, factory line, it was ten dollars an hour with full benefits and pensions. It wow. was a huge difference. Yeah, and so people losing those kind of jobs. I mean, it's no wonder that there's incredible. Um, working class outrage and yeah. middle class outrage. But so that's why I went to mm -hmm. to learn this. But um, I got involved in the union movement there, uh, tried to, um, I guess I would have to say as an Asian American going to Detroit, which was even then about 70% African American and mostly, you know, hardworking, working class city, um, very few Asian Americans uh, and, and handing out flyers about uh, a, a divestiture uh -huh. um, because of apartheid in sure. South Africa. It was a, a great experience. I mean, I was uh, spending every day with people who um, were very unlike people I had either grown up with or especially, you know, once you get to college and everything. And, and they, you know, just learning what motivates people how they get get up in the morning to every day for 30, 40 years in a job that really is um, where they're demeaned. It's very hard work, um, uh, dangerous. People get killed and injured. I mean, I had uh, accidents in the factory too. And that, I have to say, was not a plan to go into journalism, but 
but it was a good basis for it because I really uh, learned about other people's lives, um, learned how to talk to people who were different from myself, and uh, get to know them and for them to get to know me. And so uh, part of the choice was made for me because I was in Detroit at the time when the auto industry collapsed and uh, manufacturing the manufacturing sector of America disappeared. That was the restructuring mm -hmm. of the economy. And I saw all the misery that was going on around me. And I got laid off like millions of other workers mm -hmm. did at the mm -hmm. time. Had to go on unemployment and stand in lines all day long just to try to figure out things. And I realized what I wanted to do was I wanted to tell the stories of what I was seeing because nobody else was telling these stories. They were blaming Japan. They were blaming workers for being lazy. They were doing all these things, but they weren't really addressing what I saw on a day-to-day -day basis of, of um, what really, in my opinion, um, was at the cause of this and of people's uh, true misery. And uh, uh, a winter in Detroit... Um, with no idea of how you're going to pay your heat or uh, get food to eat um, for the rest of your life is a terrible time. And so um, so that's what I wanted to write about. Mm -hmm. And that's how I began mm -hmm. um, from, you know, there were no journalism majors in Princeton at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't majored in English and had no uh, um, internships or whatever to, to fall back on. Um, and I just started cold... Uh, uh, sending letters out, you know, query letters um, with no um, experience to show. <laughs> and let's just say back in those days where there were no word processors and, you know, just typewriters, I had to type out every one of those query letters, hundreds of them. And I got one reply. And that was my first uh, break. And where was that? That was at a, um, um, I guess what you call these progressive weekly newspapers that every city has. It was the Detroit Detroit Metro Times, and um, it always had some articles in it, also talking about entertainment and things like that in, in uh, the Detroit area. And of course, my first several breaks at that place were free. I got to, you know, write on spec, meaning that we'll give you a chance. We're not going to pay you, but uh, you can, let's see what you do. And, and uh, from there, I eventually was able to write about the, uh, the changing labor movement and um, uh, manufacturing industries of America. And you also, I am again going to fast forward a bit, you also uh, wrote a lot about women, and you ended up as executive uh, editor of Ms. Magazine, which is um, obviously a storied magazine, an enormous platform, national platform for important issues, certainly at the time uh, uh, one of the few uh, important platforms for these sorts of issues. Um, how did that happen? And maybe but the better question would be how did you use that? platform, that megaphone? Well, so it was a long road to miss. I mean, I knew that I, I wanted to be at a, um, um, at, at a, I knew I wanted to be in magazines and I wanted to be at a publication that would be um, focused on making change. And so occasionally I could write an article. Detroit was a great news town to begin because there's incredible change in news. And, and I wrote a number of articles when sexual harassment wasn't even a word. I wrote an, articles about that, about date rape when it was first becoming a concept. And demonstrations took place at University of Michigan from my articles. But, um, 
But I knew I wasn't going to live in the Midwest forever. And so I made the migration back east and to New York. And it took a long time to get to Ms. because most magazines are really like small businesses. They have small staffs. And you kind of have to wait for somebody to quit or die to have a vacancy. <laughs> and and I just persisted. I knew I wanted to be there. I, I uh, contacted them when they were interviewing for some position. And they said, you know, you would be terrific here, but we don't have a position for you. Try back again. And I think I tried back several years. You know, I would just check back occasionally. By then, I had become editor-in-chief of a, of a trade publication, which is a totally different thing. But so the idea of a megaphone of wherever you are, um, when I was at the trade publication, it's about, it was a business publication. It was a job for me. Um, I learned a lot of the craft, um, but these weren't political articles. But occasionally we would write, uh, you know, come up with an idea like, um, uh, uh, what is this business like for women, you know, um, or to make sure that every photo or the sources that we used were diverse and that we had a, a range of those and that the, the photos and the illustrations were um, reflected the world that we were in and not just, you know, one segment of it. Um, so Ms. was a place where everything was. Uh, so eventually somebody did quit. And, you know, this is another long story, but they quit because Ms. was going out of business. And then they said, well, the good news is if you'd like to come to Ms., here's a, a job for you. The bad news is we could go out of business um, by the next issue. <laughs> and I just thought, you know what, this, this is what I wanted to do. Even if I just work on one issue, I'll go do that. And then I'll have to find another job somewhere else. <laughs> but I went, and it didn't go out of business. And, um, you know, the idea of you know, people work hard, right? And the idea of spending all your day working on things that were meaningful. And even within a place like Ms., we would have to talk about, okay, who gets on the cover? You know, we have a Mother's Day issue coming out. Um, should it be somebody who reflects our traditional base, which basically is code for a white woman mm -hmm. and her daughter, mm -hmm. or, um, you know, and so I really advocated to, to find other women, and we ended up having a, a South Asian, an Indian woman and her daughter, you know, who are both um, incredibly active and amazing uh, feminist organizers on the cover of Ms. Magazine, and it was the first time uh, to have women of color, you know, on a, quote, mainstream women's magazine. So, uh, so anyway, those are the you you find the places where you can make a difference wherever wherever whatever. Well, Helen Zia, thank you very very much. I think we could talk all day on I that. I think so too. I'm looking forward to your book, which is coming out in January 2019, "The Last Boat Out of Shanghai: The Epic Story of the Chinese Who Fled Mao's Revolution." Thank you so much. No, thank you, Margaret. And thank you to our audience also. You've been listening to She Roars, a podcast from Princeton University. I'm Margaret Koval. I'd like to express thanks to our audio engineer, Daniel Kearns, and to our producer, Danielle Alio. We'll be back again soon with more insights and reflections from the change-making women of Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications, with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, 
please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.